0: So as we tackle chapter 1 of Romans, Lord, as we kind of finish this off, I pray that you would give us the understanding that we need, especially as we go through this next set of verses, that you would give us clarity, understanding, and that you would use this to continue to shape us. And as you continue to form us and as you continue to make us holy, that you would use this passage to help us see more clearly and understand you deeply. In the name of Jesus, we pray. So this morning, we have this really kind of tricky set of passages of Bible verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I've read that. It's not tricky. That's easy. Let me go up there and preach that set of verses. But the truth is, is that there's so much more to what we see and what we're about to see this morning. So I'm going to just dive into this head 1st I'm going to ask you to kind of strap your seatbelts on. Um, If you miss anything in the course of the next thirty minutes or so, hear it on the on the on the podcast later this week when it's up. Because what we're going to be looking at today is is, it's foundational. It continues to build on the previous week's teachings. So I want to begin by by kind of addressing or asking the question of if you've ever been married, if you ever hope to be married, or even if you've ever seen a wedding on television or in a movie. It's very likely that you will have heard a traditional set of wedding vows that go something like this. I take you, whoever, to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. So this is a traditional wedding vow. We've seen this and we've seen that this is what a married couple or a, or a couple will do right before they kind of tie the knot as they're tying the knot they one promises to the other that they will do this the other promises it back and then the the preacher will ask do you will you know do you accept these terms this terms of this relationship and each one of the partners will say i do what essentially each person is agreeing to is to love that person and to be faithful to that person no matter what happens, no matter whether the situations are good or whether the situations are bad. If you are married, you can attest to the fact that there are going to be some bad days, right? It's okay. Amen. Yeah. But if you're married, you know that there are going to be some days or some stretches of days where things are just not functioning the way that you thought they would before you said, I do. But then there's other moments where things are going exactly the way they're supposed to, and it's easier to be nicer to the other person when things are great. It's easier to be more loving and affectionate when things are good. But what the wedding vow says is, I will commit to be faithful and to love you no matter what our days look like it's a commitment. It's, it's what we would also call a covenant, which is like a fancy word for a pact or a deal, and a covenant usually is sealed with some sort of legal kind of signature that means not only have you professed this before God, but there's also, it's also a, it's legal in the state of California and the United States. You are legally binding yourself to this commitment. Now imagine, for instance, that one day, one of the partners, because perhaps there has been a stretch of bad days, decides that they are no longer going to keep this covenant. Let's say that one partner decides, you know what? You know what? He keeps being this way, so forget him. And, and, or she keeps being this way, so forget her. And say one day this partner goes and starts to have some sort of a relationship with someone else. What would we call that? Infidelity. In essence, they are breaking the covenant that they swore before God, before a priest, and they signed into, legal, into a legal form that they would do it, they are breaking that covenant, and they become unfaithful. We've all seen this story played out in movies and television shows and in real life. Now imagine this story, and instead of it being a marriage between a man and a woman, imagine that it's between God and the nation of Israel. God enters into a covenant, into a relationship that is legally binding with the people of Israel, with the nation as a whole, and God in essence says, I will promise to love you no matter what, if you keep these specific commands. And so in order to kind of see what this looks like, I invite you, well, to look up at the screen for now in Exodus chapter 19. All right, we talk about wedding as a covenant, and the Bible uses this kind of marriage language, in order to help us understand God's relationship to those of faith, people of faith. So here's what the Bible says. Moses went up to, went up to God. The Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and, to tell, and tell the Israelites, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God says, Look, look at what I have done for you. I've courted you. I have won you over. Now, therefore... If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession over all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. He says, if you obey my voice. So God is coming to them. He says, I've already won you over. I've given you all the flowers. I've done everything, every romantic gesture, in a sense, right? When he rescues them from slavery. He says, I've done all this, now I'm asking you to enter into this relationship with me, and all I'm asking is that you obey what I tell you. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, saw the leaders, he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is... Wedding language. This is marriage language. Do you take this person? I do. God is coming before the Israelites. He says, Will you accept me? And will you follow the terms of this covenant, of these laws and these commandments? And what do the people respond by saying? We will do. We will do everything you have said, God. We will fulfill our end of the covenant because we know that you can be trusted. We know that you will be faithful. We know what you've done for us, and we will. We will do exactly as you have asked us. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses agrees on behalf of the elders and the leaders of Israel. Yes, God, we will follow the terms of the covenant. We will follow the terms of this legally binding contract that we have made between you and us. Simple enough, right? Now let's look a couple of chapters down the road. If you have your red Bibles, I'm going to ask you to pull out your red Bibles. It's not up on the screen, so page 146, Deuteronomy 29. Some of you are asking, I thought we were doing a a study in the book of Romans. We are. We are. But in order to understand what we're going to look at today, we have to understand a few basic principles from the Old Testament. So vows, wedding language. God comes before the nation of Israel. He asks them, will you do what I am asking you to? And they all agree, yes, we will. We will agree to this covenant. And Deuteronomy, it's actually Deuteronomy 28, 144. I I, I misprinted. Deuteronomy 28, page 144. We're just going to read a little bit from here, okay? We're going to kind of go quickly because this isn't the central thesis or whatever of my sermon. So here we go, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give to you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. So if you do what I say, God will make you the very best. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So if you fulfill your end of the covenant, this is what God's going to do for you. Verse three, you will be blessed in the city and, in the con- and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land and the young of your livestock and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket, your kneading throw will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and you will be blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hands on. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that he is giving you, and he will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So I'm going to stop there. So what we find in Deuteronomy, Moses continues to write, he says, if you do, if you fulfill your end of this covenant, God is going to bless everything you touch, your marriages, your children, your jobs, right? This is Old Old Testament language, like barns and animals, that would be like your full-time job, your part-time job. So everything that is a part of your life, if you do what God says, you will be blessed. Every part of your life. Now, let's look at the other side of this. Verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So you either are blessed or you will be cursed, which is the Bible way of saying these are the consequences of your actions. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading throw will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, the crops of your land, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, rebuke, in everything you do and everything you put your hand on until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. That's good news. Let's keep going. The Lord will plague you with disasters until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, scorching, heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder, if you will come down from this, and it will come down from you from the skies until you are destroyed. You will be defeated by your enemies. God enters into a covenant with his people. Who says that if you do good, you will be blessed. If you do bad, you will be cursed. Now, how many of you, and you don't, don't answer, because I know what the answer is. But for how many of you, have you ever experienced something and you think to yourself, well, God, why are you, you must be punishing me. This happened because you are punishing me. You're living into this, what we just read. But God, I've done so much for you. How could this bad thing happen? I've heard that before. Or, nope, that makes sense, God. I did this yesterday, and you're punishing me today. Okay, touche. But we hear this all the time, and intrinsic in you. And you can say that, no, I don't believe that. But I guarantee you that when really bad things happen in your life, or things that are unexpected, perhaps a part of us would say, God, why are you punishing me? All of this leads us to Romans chapter 1 verse 18 where Paul says for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Remember last week I said this isn't the sermon you bring your friends to? Where's the good news pastor? Paul, a Roman citizen but who from birth was taught about the entire Old Testament. The first five books of the Bible, which is where the covenant language comes from, right? Where the curses and blessings, Paul understood all of that, and he lived into that paradigm. So he takes that understanding and he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness for those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Wrath. The wrath of God. No one likes the wrath of God. Even when we talk about it, we don't like talking about the wrath of God because we believe that God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. And yet Paul in the New Testament throws a huge monkey wrench here because we've just been preaching about God's grace. And we just read that God's grace, that through faith in Christ, we have been made righteous. We have been made right in the eyes of God. But then Paul, like out of left field, throws this verse in here, where he says, oh, but the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So there's a couple of things I want to look at here. First off, the wrath of God. We look at the Old Testament time and time again. We see that the wrath of God is manifested in the Old Testament. The big story, the movie that just came out not that long ago, right? The story of Noah. What does God do? He destroys the entire world through a flood because of the wickedness. And and what the Bible says, the word it uses is because of the blood that was spilled. So because there was a lot of death, a lot of killing, war. God destroys the entire world except for one man and his family. Time and time again, we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their sinfulness, God destroys them. We see throughout the prophets that God allows the nation of Israel, his holy people, the people he made this covenant with, he allows the Israelites to go into exile. He is, they, are, they are dominated by other countries. They are spread out throughout the regions. They no longer have a homeland because God's wrath allows the natural course of things to play out because they have forsaken the covenant. To which some of you are like, I don't like where this sermon is going. Because for some of you, some of you might be thinking, I know I've done bad things. And maybe some of you are now like, oh, that's why things aren't working out the way they're supposed to. Because maybe I am being sinful somewhere in my life, and God is punishing me. You see, because when God enters into a legally binding agreement, okay, when God enters into a legally binding agreement, he promises that curses will come upon you, that things you will be punished for breaking this covenant. Now, today, you know, we can ask any one of our lawyers, Bob or Don, if you're in a courtroom and a judge kind of lets the law slide and, and doesn't keep people accountable, is that judge going to last very long? No. Yeah, yeah he, No, he's supposed to uphold the law. Now, if a, if a judge won't do that, if a judge won't let things slide, is God the judge of the whole universe? Is he going to let things slide? So, let's keep going. Um, let's go to Romans, so page 796 in your Red Bibles, please. I just felt like you had to pick up your Bibles for this. Paul just says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And a better translation is, isn't is revealed, but rather is being currently revealed, okay? So let's, let's look at this. Page 796, verse 19. So those who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. In essence, th- people should be able to at least have a glimpse or some hint that there is a God who exists just by the things that he has made. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men and women are without excuse. So at the very least, believers and non-believers alike everybody can at least get a glimpse that there is a God who exists even by the mere, na- by the mere reality of nature. By, by what we see, by what has been created, even by human individuals. When, when someone is really kind and nice, we usually say, like, there's something about that person. Has, has someone ever said to you, you must be Christian. I knew you were because of by the way that you acted. That, that's a sign of God. So Paul is saying, no one, in, there's no excuse. Everyone has seen at least a glimpse of God. Verse 21. For although people knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds, And animals, reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over into their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So even though there was a hint, even though there is a hint of God, there is people who still will not live their life according to the way of the covenant. So God gives them over, hands them over, Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So he is saying people have turned from worshiping the one true living creator God to worshiping any and everything else. They turn to idol worship. Idol worship is, is, is having something in your life that is more important than your relationship with Christ. Here in the, in, the, in the first century, there was statues, there was idols, there was temples. People would sacrifice to these gods. And so God's saying, look, I gave, you, I gave you a chance to see who I am, and yet you still are rejecting it. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for natural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for this, for their perversion. The natural way of things, and then every other way. God says, I I did the best I could. I gave you everything. I set everything in motion for you. Everything was exactly as it was supposed to, but from the beginning in the Garden of Eden until the very end, people will choose to do things the way they want to do things. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so since they didn't try to seek out God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. So he says he gave them over, he handed them over, he gave them over. So there's this sense of God saying, fine, you don't want to choose my way. I'm going to allow you to choose your way. Fine, go, do your thing. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't know about you, but on some of these, I'm pretty good. Verse 27, I'm good. Haven't, you know. Verses, a couple of, in verses 28, I'm good. 29, I'm okay on some of them. But I gossip sometimes. Sometimes on the freeway, I am filled with strife (laughs) and malice. Sometimes I may have slandered, I don't know. I can be arrogant and boastful. I've disobeyed my parents. Sometimes I've lacked faith. So I'm good on 27, (laughs) but not on the others. Here's the good news. This is a message for non-believers. Paul is saying, this is for those who are not inside the family of God. They do these things. Here's the problem. I do some of these things too. And what it tells us when Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed, when God hands you over to your own ways, that's God's wrath. God's like, look, I set this up really nicely for you. I have given you an inheritance, yet you choose to do things your own way. So God's wrath is fine. If you you keep wanting to do things your own way, go ahead. Because God knows that the natural consequences of doing the things that we find in these couple of verses is it's going to lead you away from a fulfilling and a happy and a joyful life. But This is for non-believers, not for you who are sitting here in this church. Wrath of God isn't stored up for you, is it? But yet what we find in the covenant is that for the people of faith, wrath is stored up for you. Because if God is a just God, then he will demand payment for the sins that you have committed. If God is a just and righteous God, then your sins, your actions there is consequence because in the Old Testament there is blessings if you're good and curses if you're bad. So the just God will say I demand payment for your sins. I warned you for thousands of years and now I am collecting. Except that on the cross Jesus pays your debt. So yeah, there's a covenant, and yeah, we we should be living good lives, but not for salvation. You cannot be good enough to earn your salvation, but rather Jesus fulfills the covenant at the cross. Not only, and here's how he fulfills the covenant. Jesus keeps all of the laws perfectly, and he innocently goes and offers himself as a sacrifice for all the world. That's what a sacrifice is. He doesn't deserve to die. He didn't do anything to die. He didn't sin, and Jesus offers himself so that you, thousands of years later, would not have to pay for your sins, because God understands that if we are still living under the old covenant, where if you do good, you will be rewarded, and if you do bad, you will be punished, we would be living horribly miserable lives. But just as God demands payment, God also pays the price. Christ absorbs the punishment of sin that's the good news but what do we do with this text in romans we're looking and we're pointing at all of these things verse 27 right that's one that people like to point to and say you see that's why same-sex marriage is horrible we point to that but what we forget is that the next two verses you do those things but they're all in the same so to use verse 27 and say homosexuality is wrong i'm not saying it's right or right? i'm just saying To use that text to point out that that's why it's wrong is to miss the entire point of this section. Because what Paul actually does is, no, here's what he does. I'll just, can we read it? I'll actually show you what Paul does. Therefore, chapter 2, Romans, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on people from verse 27... 28 and 29 all of those sins we read when you pass judgment on those people in passing judgment on another you condemn yourselves Because you the judge are doing the same thing So see we're talking about those people outside of the faith, right? But then Paul says not Judge them all you want But just know that when you judge them you judge yourself because you are guilty of the same things You say we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. How many times have we heard that? There's a standard that we must follow, and if they don't follow that standard, then they are out or they are sinful. And yet Paul says, don't, don't use that. Don't use that as a reason for why you're judging people. Because he just said, you have no excuse to judge others because even though you may not be doing one of the sins that that person you're judging is doing, who isn't living up to the standard of God, you will get, I guarantee you, right? Men's house would guarantee, or the George Foreman grill guarantee you that you may not be doing some of those sins, but you're doing another sin. And what the Bible teaches us is that if you break one sin, you're guilty of breaking them all. So when you start judging other people in verse 27, God's like, you too. You too, you're in that group. When you start judging people who gossip, God says, you too, you're in that group. Show me one man who is perfect, then I'll shut up, is what God is saying. And God's like, that's what I thought. God sends Christ to absorb the punishment of your sins. That, now, let, let, me, let me get this. If you only have one son, would you ever give that son up to die for people who don't deserve it? No. You would say, sorry, son. <laughs> but they're not, you're not doing it. And yet God, it costs God everything so that you would be forgiven when you don't deserve it. So, the next time someone says, well, well the Bible says this, be like, yeah, but look at this. Look at all, what also the Bible says. The Bible is never to be used as a sword to cut people. I know we always say, oh, this is the sword of truth. Yeah, but it's not used to cut people and hurt people. A sword is also, it, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of conquer, of victory. It is a reminder of what God has done for us. So he says, you are guilty of doing the same thing. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the very moment that you are judging someone, you have brought judgment on yourself. This is, uh, this is not good news, because I judge people. I try not to, but we all do it. And, and what Paul is saying is, like, look, man, we just pointed the finger at all these people, but what Paul was actually doing was this brilliant way of, like, a brilliant way of rhetoric, this brilliant way of, like, like getting all these people pointing and, like, yeah, those people are bad. And then in this grand judo move, Paul reverses it and he says, no, you're pointing at yourself because you are them. Do you imagine whoever you are that when you judge those who do such things and yet you do them yourself that you will escape the punishment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness? When you judge someone, you are rejecting God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? How many people have you judged and then they're like, oh, now I repent? It doesn't work like that. When someone tells you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, okay, I'm wrong, I'm so sorry, I'll never, no, you fight back, and what Paul is saying, look, when you judge someone, what you're actually doing is you are despising, you are hating the kindness that God has had on you, because if you are truly a Christian, you would understand that when God has been graceful and forgiven you, Jesus absorbed your sins, okay, but he also absorbed the sins of everyone else, that's the only way it works. And what we find here is that when you judge others, you are forgetting that you yourself are forgiven. When you judge others, you are forcing people to go and live under the covenant again. When you judge people, you are going back and you're telling them, all right, let's take away the death of Jesus. You're under punishment. You're under the curses of the Old Testament. But that's not the way it is. Don't you understand that Jesus absorbs, that he fulfills the covenant? And this is my favorite, like one of my favorite passages in scripture. He says, do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is allowing people to follow their own ways. God is allowing people to reject him. But God is patient and God is always I believe always pursuing every single one And even for those of you who have accepted christ into your life God is still pursuing you because he knows that it is super easy to feel like we have to live under this covenant But the truth is that sometimes bad things happen because there's sin in the world The truth is is that bad things happen not because you're bad Because the bible doesn't say you're bad. The bible says you're dead It says you're dead in your sin and God has resurrected you Amen. into the newness of life. So bad things don't happen because you had a bad day. Bad things happen cuz there's sin and the devil is running rampant and his evil minions are trying to mess us up as much as we can. But even though we stumble and even though we fall and even though we feel like, you know, we're living under this old testament covenant, all we have to remember is that we must look at the Christ because Jesus at the cross, because Jesus says that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. to, To say that bad things happen because you were sinful that day is to erase the death of Christ in history. And you can't. So I'll finish with this final analogy. Imagine that you have thousands of dollars of school debt. Then you buy a house because you need somewhere to live. You have debt on top of that. And you buy a car. And you have credit cards. And you have this bill and that bill. Imagine that you rack up a debt of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Now, if you are in debt, the money that does come in gets, a, gets proportioned out to the different things that you owe, right? So when, when you have a money to pay, like debt, you get your paycheck and you say, I'm going to put this much of my paycheck towards my debt and I'm going to live off of this much and I'm going to try to save this much, right? That's what we do. Now imagine, for instance, that somebody, a benefactor, comes and pays off all of your debt. Right? Awesome, right? That's good news. That's great news, especially if it's a lot of debt. But now imagine that as you get your paycheck every couple of weeks, every two weeks, you're still living like you have this debt. Like, I have to put this much of my paycheck to pay this debt. And, and every week that you get paid, every other week that you get paid, you keep trying to pay off the debt. Well, that debt's already paid, that would be foolish. Any one of you would be foolish to be living and keep paying a debt that's already been paid. We don't do that, and yet we wouldn't do that in real life, Yet, and so we can't do that when it comes to your sins. God has paid the price. Don't take that away. Don't take that away from those who haven't even had a chance to experience that. Don't do that to yourself, because if you try to earn, like, to be good enough so that God can be good to you, First of all, you're not going to be good enough, and so you're going to have really bad days for the rest of your life. And that's not how things work anymore. That's not the way, because then God, then we would be manipulating God. Like, I'm going to be really good today, I'm going to make some investments, and God's going to make them pay off. That's not how it works. That was an Old Testament way of understanding how God interacts with his people. But Jesus does away with that. Because God knew that that was unfair and we could never, ever live up to fulfilling that covenant. God knew, as we said last week, that it was a dead end. It, you'd never stand a chance. So God, when he demands payment, he pays it himself and he absorbs your sin. And if you finally understand that, then you won't need to point the finger at anyone else. Because you know that you are in the same boat with them. Now, I'm going to bring this to a close with that. Come back the next, like, two or three weeks, because we're going to keep tackling this. Because for us to fully understand this section of Scripture, you have to read all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. These three chapters go together, so it's hard to break it up week by week. So you have to keep coming back so that you really see the fullness of this message. So let us pray. God, we, um, we're we really wrestling with this because we still want to live under the covenant. So much of what the devil has taught us is that we are still living under that old covenant. But God, this morning I pray that the words we read in your scripture, that you would help them to resonate and sink into our lives so that as we are thankful for the grace you have given us, may we also dispense that grace to all those who don't know you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.